Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, Canada-China relations. The Huawei CFO is enjoying her mansion. Canadian detainees are enjoying less than stellar conditions. Now that cannabis is legalized, has the shine worn off the pumpkin? And the story of Vice Admiral Mark Norman could be as damaging to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and the Liberals as the SNC-Lavalin case. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, uh, the Canadian who was sentenced to death in China has pleaded his innocence at a uh, appeal hearing. Uh, that being said... Uh, not really sure of his future at this time. Uh, you might remember uh, Canadian Robert Schellenberg uh, was actually charged way back when and convicted of drug trafficking in China and sentenced to a sentence of about uh, 15 years, I believe it was, to life. Uh, now, uh, well, after the, uh, the detention of the Huawei CFO in Vancouver, uh, he had his sentence upgraded to death. That's working its way through the courts now. Um, many are saying that uh, this case is, is where it is now, uh, simply because uh, the Hmong case has been delayed. To talk more about all of this, Benoit Hardy-Chartrand is with us, an adjunct professor at Temple University, Japan, in Tokyo, and is with us now. Benoit, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Sure, glad to be there. Thank you. How do you explain what is happening with Schellenberg and its relation to what is happening with the CFO of Huawei? Well, right. Well, there is quite certainly a, a relation between the two. We have to remember that in China, the court, the court system, the judicial system overall is quite political. Uh, there is a very opaque system. And uh, even though Xi Jinping, the president of China since 2014, has made some judicial reforms, the reality is that the Communist Party continues to have the ultimate, uh, ultimate decision-making authority over, uh, over pretty much all cases in China, and especially even more so uh, with cases that are politically sensitive. Uh, given what has happened uh, in the last few months, well, ever since December with the arrest of Meng Wenzhou, quite obviously the case of, uh, of Schellenberg, although it is a criminal case, has kind of taken on a, a political veneer uh, because of this situation. So there is a link, obviously. Now, what kind of effect uh, will that have on Canadian, uh, on Canada-China relationship will depend, of course, on what ends up happening with uh, Mr. Schellenberg. Is it safe to say that this is all up in the air and these cases are stalled while the CFO is on Canadian soil? Um, I mean, yes, you could say that in one way for sure. Now, we don't know exactly when Schellenberg's case is going to be, uh, when the sentence is going to come down. Now, we know that uh, they haven't given a decision today. Uh, they have a few days to do so. But the reality is, uh, in the Chinese court system, they could hold off for months and potentially even longer before they give a decision on the Schellenberg case. There's no actual time limit for them to give, uh, to give their decision uh, as, to the, as to Mr. Schellenberg's sentence. Therefore, certainly, given what is happening with uh, Meng Wanzhou, which is capturing uh, Chinese leaders' attention for months when it comes to their relations with Canada, uh, they are quite likely to wait uh, to see, or quite possibly going to wait to see what happens with this in the extradi uh, extradition hearing before uh, they come up with a decision on uh, Mr. Schellenberg. 
Uh, many have uh, compared uh, how uh, Schellenberg and the other two detained Canadians are being treated in in China. Well, the the CFO of Huawei is enjoying uh, one of her mansions in Vancouver. Right. Uh, we constantly hear we have to understand how Chinese law works. Does China understand how uh, North American law works? And are they concerned at all about their perception? Of their about the perception of their actions, considering they're working so hard to sell as a 5G network. Right, right, right. Well, they are certainly now at least aware of the differences when it comes to political interference in uh, uh, between Canada and China when it comes to political interference and influence on the judicial system. Remember that after Meng Wanzhou was arrested in, in early December, uh, there, were, there were multiple appeals uh, from Chinese leaders to have, her, uh, to have her released. But the reality is, as we know, I mean, the Canadian government repeatedly explained to, uh, through public channels and back channels as well to the, to, the, to the party leaders in Beijing that there was simply nothing that the Canadian government could do about that. Now, the message must have been I would imagine after all this time, the message must have been clearly understood in China. Now, uh, you were talking as well about the differences in treatment when it comes to the treatment of Schellenberg and as well as the two Canadians, the two other Canadians who were arrested merely 10 days uh, after the original arrest of Meng Wanzhou. So we're talking about Michael Spavor and Michael Kohlberg as well. And these two cases, or these three cases actually, uh, the... They are very much treated in a much different manner uh, than Meng Wangzhou was treated here in Canada. And certainly that hasn't helped with the perception of China here in Canada. Um, I've sp- spoken repeatedly here to diplomats in Tokyo who are consistently in touch with our colleagues at the Canadian embassy in China and in Beijing. And there doesn't seem to have been any kind of change over how uh, Spavor, the two, uh, the two Michaels, Spavor and Kovrig ha- are being treated, which means that they're not, uh, they're not treated exactly the way that we would treat prisoners or rather detain people in Canada. They are, uh, as um, much of your listeners, many of your listeners will have heard, uh, they are detained in conditions that are quite difficult. Uh, for example, the lights are always on and therefore they are de- deprived of sleep. Uh, they are being interrogated for very many, many long hours. And this, of course, goes against our, you know, our most basic principles here in Canada and certainly doesn't help with, uh, with, with the Chinese image, not only here, but in the rest of the world. And I would say that uh, to also link back to your question about Huawei and their, um, their campaign, if you will, or their, their willingness or their attempts to have to sell their own 5G networks all over the world, that, I would say, hasn't helped with that. We have seen a movement over the last few months. This movement, this movement actually predates the original arrest of Meng Wanzhou, but there are certainly right. many security concerns over uh, the control, uh, the possible control or alleged control of the Chinese Communist Party over Huawei, and therefore that would lead to security risk if we were to adopt uh, the 5G network, networks. And these concerns, I would say, are even more heightened uh, since, uh, since this case has uh, arisen in, uh, in December of last year, and they are certainly not going to die, da- to die down. Uh, the, the, these concerns will not be alleviated uh, given, the, given the, the, the case at hand that we've been talking about. Why does China not detain uh, U.S. citizens? Why are they not uh, putting this attention, some say even bullying the, why are they not bullying the Americans the way right. they are Canadians? 
Right. Well, that, that is a very good question and a question that I have been asked repeatedly over the past, over the past few months since, uh, since December. The reality is China finds uh, Canada or finds it a lot easier and politically a lot more manageable to detain Canadian citizens than, uh, than if it had decided to detain American citizens. Uh, because, of course, given the fact that the, the arrest request was made by the, was made by the Americans, you know, the, the, the Chinese government would have had a good case, or not necessarily a good case, but would have had good reasons to want to target specifically uh, Ch- uh, American uh, citizens in China. The reality is, given, you know, we have to look at the aggregate powers of, uh, aggregate power, sorry, of all the countries that are involved here, and Canada has much less uh, leverage over China. It is not a, it is not an exactly uh, major trading partner for China. It is not a country that can, in return, bully China uh, the way that it feels that it has been bullied by China. And therefore, for that very reason, uh, China found it a lot, a lot easier, a lot more manageable to target Canadian citizens. The same way that in the past it has often um, employed similar tactics, not always detainment, but has uh, often used similar tactics on other middle powers and not great powers. So it's important to mention that Canada is not necessarily the first country that has uh, borne the, the, the brunt of Chinese actions. Uh, Norway, just to give an example, a few years ago, uh, because uh, the Nobel Prize was awarded to a Chinese dissident who the Communist Party did not uh, like very much, I'm talking about Liu Xiaobo, who died in detention last year, uh, the, Chinese, uh, the Chinese government decided to impose very important sanctions on, uh, on the Norwegian government. Uh, it did the same thing two years ago over Korea because it wasn't happy about South Korea's uh, installation of an American missile defense, defense system. So it decided to block Chinese citizens from going to China, for example. It canceled uh, tours of South Korean uh, pop artists in China. So this is all to show you that it's not uh, limited to Canada. And China has been known in the past to target countries that uh, it finds a little bit easier to, to handle than would have been the case if, China, if American citizens would have been targeted. That being said, in the last several decades, it seems that we have build, been building relationships with China. It seems that they understand more and more how business in the rest of the world uh, uh, has evolved and such. Uh, do, does China realize that with every one of these actions, it only hurts their reputation, their trust, uh, honor, if you say, uh, especially when it comes to selling their wares in other parts of the world, especially when they're trying to get everyone to adopt the Huawei 5G network? Or are they so big they just don't care? Well, here's the thing. I have no doubt in my mind that the Chinese are aware of how of their, the perception in the world. They read international surveys. They see that the perception of China, especially in the West, has uh, somewhat dwindled over the past few years. And despite the fact that right now the United States under Donald Trump does not have a very positive international image, and especially here in China, uh, especially here in the region in Asia or in Japan where I am, uh, the fact of the matter uh, is that China continues to be perceived as a somewhat uh, disruptive actor all around the world, in, especially in Western countries and their population. So they are aware of that. But what's China? What the Chinese leaders are doing is that they are betting on the fact that the Chinese market, the Chinese economy is just too big for people to, uh, to ignore and that in the end it will prevail over concerns of other countries. 
And as a matter of fact, so far, uh, their bets have not been really misguided, I would say. Um, the Canadian uh, government uh, is one of the countries, I think, that, have, that has understood that very clearly. It knows that the Chinese market is way too important to completely ignore. Uh, and same thing in the region, for that matter. You know, I'm, I'm in Japan right now, and Japan is very concerned, very wary about Chinese actions. Uh, China is considered one of the main sources of threat for Japan, as well as North Korea. They are the two most important threats for the government. But despite that, the Japanese government cannot simply, can simply not ignore the importance of the market, uh, the Chinese market. So despite these concerns, they continue to have uh, to deal closely with the Chinese. Same thing with South Korea that has uh, concerns of its own over the, the rising power or the uh, aggregate power of China. They continue to deal with China because, again, we're talking about a 1.4 billion uh, billion people country, and its economy is the second largest in the world. Will probably surpass the United States within probably a dec- decade. So all that points towards the fact that you know any country would simply hurt itself if it was going to um, if it was going to stop trading with China. So all that to say that the perceptions, yes, are negative, and I'm pretty sure not not, not I'm pretty sure I'm convinced, as I mentioned earlier, I know that they are aware of these perceptions, but they understand that the attractivity of their market, the attractivity of their products uh, will, in the end, uh, prevail over uh, political or security concerns. So at this point, China, well, and in the future, too big, uh, too big to fail. Um, uh, they now control us simply over simply due to the buying power uh, and the size of this country. What does that mean in the future? Well, Where does this lead? Yes. Uh, well, I would I would uh, nuance a little bit the idea that China is too big to fail. Sure, it has been doing extremely well since 1979, since the reform of Deng Xiaoping, uh, who's so the, the 40 the 40th anniversary of these reform uh, reforms were celebrated this year. And these reforms are obviously extremely important because these are the reforms that put China on the path to becoming the great power uh, that it is today. Uh, so it has been growing extremely fast, especially since the early 2000s. Uh, but that does not necessarily mean that uh, this path is going to remain linear. Uh, there are certain cracks in the system. Uh, Xi Jinping, the, the president who came to power in the early 2010s, I think it was 2012 that he came to power, or late 2011, uh, he's really increased uh, repression over civil society. I think there are concerns uh, within the Communist Party over uh, possible uh, dissidents, which is one of the reasons why we have seen greater uh, repression and greater uh, control of government over freedom of speech, over the Internet. Uh, and when it comes to the economy as well, the Chinese government is heavily indebted. Uh, there are some concerns, some economists, uh, not only Chinese, but foreign economists as well, have voiced concerns over some imbalances within the Chinese economy, uh, some banks as well, that are some of the major banks within China that are not uh, particularly strong, that are heavily indebted. Uh, all that to say that China is not entirely impervious or immune to a possible economic crisis or even potentially, I don't think that it will arrive, but he, uh, that it will happen, but even potentially a collapse of the Communist Party uh, eventually. So all that to say that uh, the current situation for China is somewhat rosy at the moment, but that doesn't mean that it'll continue being that way. And especially if the rest of the world continue to have concerns over the direction of Chinese economic and political policies. And we see some kind of 
coalition, not sure coalition would be the right term, but we see more and more countries uh, kind of banding together to put more pressure on China, then, you know, the the situation might not, in the end, look so rosy for Beijing. Benoit Hardy-Chatran has been with us, adjunct professor at Temple University, Japan in Tokyo. Uh, Benoit, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. You know, I remember this happened when uh, we were talking about uh, alcohol in sale, uh, for sale in grocery stores and and such. Uh, Remember uh, prior to that, a lot of people were upset. A lot of people were concerned. The same thing happened uh, with cannabis. A lot of people, my goodness, were going to a hell in a handbasket. And now it seems that Canadians are losing interest. In, uh, in the whole experiment, a survey done by the researchers at University of Guelph and Dalhousie says 50% of Canadians agree with the decision to legalize cannabis, but the stigma remains high and support seems to be fading. Uh, back in 2017, 68% said that uh, legalization of cannabis was uh, uh, on their radar. That has since dropped. To talk more about this, Brad Polos is with us, instructor, Ted Rogers School of Management. Ryerson and with us now. Brad, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Sure, Scott. Nice your thought, your thoughts on how this has all rolled out to date. Can this be considered a success, considering where we are? Yeah, I guess it depends on what lens you want to, you know, look at it through, Scott. So, from the point of view of a cannabis consumer, you're probably going to get a fair bit of pushback if you try to say that it's a success. Uh, if you take the point of view of the the average Canadian that isn't really as invested in the product from a consumption point of view. Um, you know, I think it's been a reasonable success in the sense that we haven't seen any major societal problems come about as a result of legalizing cannabis. Um, if you look at it from the point of view of the industry, probably mixed because there are things that they like about what Health Canada's done with the regs, and then there are things that they that they don't like. So, again, I guess it depends on which direction you look at it from. Is one province doing this better than another? Yes, absolutely. Alberta is kicking the butt of every other province. Uh, short, you know, coming right behind them would be Saskatchewan and Manitoba. And the reason I say that is because Alberta has the best coverage from a retail point of view. And there's no point in legalizing the product if you don't have stores available. And of course, I would have to put good old Ontario at the bottom of the list in terms of their grade for how they've managed their portion of this legalization, which, of course, is the distribution piece. Uh, how, how has Alberta figured this out? And, you know, we heard that Ontario was going through its struggles due to a, a supply problem. So why is that not an issue for Alberta? So, well, let's, let's just put the supply problem aside for one moment. Why did Alberta get this much better than, uh, get this right much better than Ontario? Well, first of all, Ontario started out with one plan and then switched gears, uh, midstream because of an election. So, we have to cut slack to the Ontario government for that. They they didn't get started until last June, whereby all of the other provinces had significantly more time. So so there's you know certainly that. But the other thing is that Alberta has had can sorry al- alcohol being sold by private stores for quite some time now, a couple of decades, and so they're very comfortable with that, and they took that approach right out of the gate. And so you've got these companies in Alberta that have been distributing alcohol for some time, and they're already up and running. They have employees. They have bank accounts. They have procedures. And these are the folks that are playing the game out there. So they were just in a much better position to, to capitalize. 
Uh, uh, we'll get there now. Obviously, sure. Alberta, as you said, Alberta has uh, a lot different uh, alcohol and beer system than, than what we do and, and is miles ahead of us uh, and has been for, for decades on that. But how does that address the issue of supply? Where are they getting it from? Because, again, at the end of the day, the issue for Ontario was, uh, like you said, 40 stores with one government. And then another government came in and said it was going to be you know, a free, fall, free for all. Then they rolled that back to to 25 outlets, and then they said supply was the issue. So how is how is Alberta being supplied more than well, Ontario? Supply remains an issue everywhere, but it's it, I guess it depends on how you want to look at it. So the supply of particular products, particular stockkeeping units, that goes in and out all the time, and that's very frustrating for certain you know cannabis consumers or especially medical patients who really rely on a particular strain. So, but but as as far as whether or not there's cannabis to be sold, there's enough cannabis in the system to keep these stores open in Alberta, and and Ontario could absolutely handle way more than 25 stores from a supply point of view. Fifty uh, percent uh, now agree with leg- legis- or legalization, uh, down from 68 uh, percent back in 2017. How do you explain that? That one is a real puzzle for me, I, I have to say, because as I said, there's been no real bad, there's been no bad news stories of any real, you know, note about legalization. A little bit around some um, some smell problems in some very, very specific locations. But other than that, I can't really think of any big news stories that are negative as a result of this. So that one actually puzzles the heck out of me as well. Uh, has the government dampened uh, uh, the enthusiasm around this in order to sell it to the mainstream? Yes, absolutely. And so uh, Bill Blair, um, he's actually come out and said, we're going to legalize the use of cannabis. We're not going to normalize it. And I don't, that's, that sort of sums up the attitude of the federal government. And I don't think it's really healthy. This is now a legal product. It actually... You know, it's it's arguably way less dangerous than alcohol and tobacco, and yet it still has this stigma. And one of the things that I do in, in my course that I teach in cannabis or when I'm doing public speaking is really try to move us past that, away from the stigma to the point that that responsible use of this product is normalized. So why bother doing this then? I mean, the idea was to keep this out of the black market. It doesn't, it doesn't really seem that they've changed too much behavior at this point. Why even bother doing it? I, to me, it appears the only thing they've done is, is got people who were sitting on the fence and thought they might want to try it if it was legal. They've got them off the fence. But have they really done anything to curb the black market with this? Not, not yet, but it's still fairly early days. So they've diverted somewhere between 10 and 20% of the black market, depending on which jurisdiction we're talking about. Uh, but it's only the first six months. And remember, we only have cannabis flour and oil and, you know, gel caps filled with oil and that sort of stuff available right now. But come the fall, the, the legal market will be in a much better position to compete with the black market because they're going to have all kinds of other product formulations that currently are not in the legal system, but of course are at the legal the illegal dispensaries, things like chocolate bars and and gummy bears and stuff. All right, Brad Polos has been with us, instructor Ted Rogers, School of Management, Ryerson University. Brad, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Always happy to help. Thanks, Scott. Take care. Let's bring in Sylvain Charlebois, lead researcher and professor at at Dalhousie University, one of those that worked on this study and is with us now. Sylvain, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. 
No problem. Your thoughts on how this has rolled out since legalization? Have have we done this correctly? Have we done it successfully? Well, it depends who you ask. If you ask Health Canada, they're pretty pleased. But when you look at um, at the social agenda, I guess uh, I'm not sure we've accomplished much. Uh, when you also look at uh, the government's objective of uh, eroding the black market, uh, I think so far it's been a bit of a failure if you compare, say, Canada to Colorado, where it's been legal for a while. The black market is still around at about 20%. But after six months, uh, the black market was severely hit by by legal cannabis. Uh, I, I wouldn't say right now that our study, that the study we published today provides any evidence that the black market has been affected by what happened in October. What is Colorado doing differently? Uh, I was listening to your previous interview, and uh, I think uh, you guys nailed it. Uh, I think it has a lot to do with attitude and and intent. Uh, When you talk to Health Canada, when you talk to, when you listen to the government, the intent was to legalize cannabis, and that's about it. And that's what they got. Uh, However, if we want to do it right, I think we need to socially normalize it. Uh, we need to go further. And, and let me give you an example of, 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 of why that is so important. Um, I would say that the study we're publishing today provides evidence that Canadians are cannabinoid illiterate. Hmm. They, a lot of people, a lot of discussions uh, uh, have been based on, on THC and psychoactive effects. Uh, people have talked about cannabis uh, as a drug making people high, but there's been little discussion on CBD. Uh, in our study, we realized that basically 30% of Canadians would know what CBD is, and CBD is likely the one ingredient that is most interesting for the food industry, uh, for edibles. And going back to Colorado, 50% of all cannabis sales actually involve an ed- cannabis in an edible form Hmm. and so it is going to be a substantial market in canada eventually and if the food industry is dealing with an uneducated public uh we have a problem so you agree that uh, the government has done its best to dampen uh, enthusiasm uh, in the mainstream and if that's the case uh why do it because it certainly hasn't seemed to curb the black market that's, that's the question we're asking. And in fact, uh, the reason why we're publishing the study today is that, uh, is that edibles are likely to become legal uh, sometime this fall. And uh, if all remains the same, if the regulatory framework presented by Health Canada is adopted by Parliament and receives royal assent eventually, you could actually see the black market ex ban as a result of uh, putting uh, edibles on stream, legal edibles on stream, because the framework is so rigid, so strict, that you could actually see uh, Canadians buy uh, edibles coming from the U.S. illegally, just because right now you would force companies to come up, to come up with a separate plant to manufacture products, cannabis-infused products, and that's prohibitive. Uh, nobody wants to do that, and that's why there's there's could be more problems down the road.
It just seems odd to make it legal, so therefore no charges if you're carrying it, but you've made distribution so difficult, that's going to just enhance the black market. I mean, the black market must be laughing at this because it's legal now, <laughs> and, and but they've cut off distribution, which makes it easier for them, no? That, that's right. So you, when you look at, at uh, distribution models, I would say that, Canada, uh, that Alberta is uh, in the leading pack. Uh, and, of course, there's some history in Alberta with alcohol. Uh, and uh, I think cannabis, uh, the way that the province handled cannabis was, I think, the right way because there are two obstacles, two main obstacles for people who want to buy, buy cannabis. One, and that's probably the most important one, is price. We're bargain hunters. If if the price in the black market is is lower, you're going to go after that product. And secondly, privacy and uh, and uh, and intimacy, basically personalization. In Alberta, and I remember when I was living in the prairies, uh, going to Alberta buying alcohol, you you got that. And I'm not sure you get that same experience when you walk into a store owned by a Crown Corporation. Fifty uh, percent uh, think this legalization is is still a good idea. That's down from sixty eight in twenty seventeen. Why do you think the change in those numbers? Uh, I I think there, I, we have two theories. One, uh, some stories may have affected the perception of some individuals. Although we haven't really seen a major uh, national scandal, uh, SNC Lavalin took care of that. <laughs> But uh, with cannabis, we didn't see anything. So that may have affected the perception of Canadians. But, the, but I think the most important one is, is related to enthusiasm. I mean, the liberals three years ago invited the entire country to some mega party with great music, balloons, a band, all the fun you want, only to end up in some boring cafeteria with lousy music. That's kind of what happened. <laughs> oh, I think you just hit the nail on the head, Sylvain. Sylvain Charlebois has been with us, lead researcher and professor at Dalhousie University, uh, talking about a survey that they have done along with the University of Guelph. Seems that uh, that interest may be waning when it comes to cannabis in Canada. Uh, a lot of it due to just uh, lack of uh, distribution and supply and such. Sylvain, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. No problem. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. So, wow, we've gone from a government that uh, was withholding information uh, to Norman's defense attorneys to now willing to pay for his 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 tab, his legal tab uh, in all of this, which is uh, is just bizarre. Uh, this case perhaps not resonating as much with. Uh, Canadians as the SNC-Lavalin affair was uh, that involved Jody Wilson-Raybould and Jane Philpott and such. This one a little deeper uh, into the weeds, but but reeks of, again, political interference in some way and, and how this person uh, even was accused of uh, what he was accused of, uh, losing his job as uh, the second in command of uh, Canada's military. And only to have, uh, after obtaining a high-priced legal defense, uh, only to find himself that a free man and all of this uh, thrown out. He now uh, is invited to go back to the military. He's uh, supposedly going to 
uh, to meet with Mr. Vance to see if that's a possibility. Uh, Norman wants his old job back. Uh, however, uh, they say that that is not going to happen. Uh, however, as I mentioned, uh, they have offered to pay uh, Norman's legal bills, which is uh, which was fascinating considering the press conference with uh, Norman and his attorney wasn't even finished uh, and uh, the Canadian government had volunteered to do that. Uh, let's bring in Michael Tobe, Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. He is with us now. Michael, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. Michael, this case perhaps not resonating as much with the average Canadian as the SNC-Lavalin uh, case. Can you give us in layman's terms what went wrong here, how this went down? I assume you're talking about the Mark Norman. Case. Yes, correct. And, yeah, sorry, I, I wasn't. I wasn't on when you were. No, I, I, I apologize for that. No problem. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think people now sort of know what's happened here, and basically, it was a two-year matter involving a breach of trust issue, which was basically the Liberal government questioned Mr. Norman's decision. He had been named, I. Think, I think in August of 2016, the vice chief of the defense staff. This is a man who was a vice admiral in the Navy, and he's been a 30-year veteran. The vice chief of the defense staff is the third highest position in Canada, which means that you obviously have a lot of faith and trust in this person's judgment for whatever the issue may be. He was concerned about uh, the nature of a Canadian ship and the payment for it and was quite worried about it and actually wrote a letter of concern directly, not because he was trying to do something like, you know, line his own pocket or puff up his ego. He was trying to basically protect the Canadian government and Canada in general from getting involved in something that he thought was costly and not effective. This led into an astonishing two-year fight where he has spent hundreds of thousands of dollars trying to protect his own name and reputation the Liberal government has basically expressed that they've been ready to go to court with him. I mean, even Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said this somewhere in the neighborhood of five to six months ago in a public news conference that, you know, he was, that this case was proceeding. So I think a lot of people were sort of wondering how this was all linked into play. They knew that Scott Bryson, the former Liberal cabinet minister, had been involved. It was also reported that Andrew Leslie, who had served as a Liberal MP, and again, another very prominent military official, he had announced that not only was he not going to run again for the Liberals, and he was just first elected in 2015, that he was actually going to testify on behalf of Mr. Norman against the Liberal government on this matter, which means he was opposing the government that he sat with for a number of years. All of this sort of extraordinarily moved into a world of hurt, and basically the Liberals probably realized in the back of their minds, no matter what they felt about this issue, Justin Trudeau has been battered by NSC Lovelon. His public image is shattered. The Liberal government is in second place in virtually every opinion poll and dropping. Quite clearly, something has happened here that they either dug their heels in too deeply without knowing the issue, or there were a lot of assumptions at play. I mean, obviously, as time goes along, we'll find out what some of these matters were. But in the end, the astonishing thing was, as you probably told the listeners, that after two years of ruining the reputation of a highly respected military veteran, they basically dropped the case, or stayed it, so to speak. And by doing this, as, the, as I think you said just at the top, just before you brought me in, they're going to be paying, you know, all the money that he spent on legal fees. 
They're not going to give him his old position back, even though quite clearly with the stay, they're almost sort of basically acknowledging nothing really happened here, or at least nothing that they can prove or nothing that they wish to prove in the court of law. And we also have the accusation by um, Mr. Norman's lawyer, Marie Hennen, who was a, who's been a lawyer for a lot of high-profile cases, including Gian Gameshi, where they basically said for you know that there was the accusation that the prime minister's office may have been trying to tamper with individuals or witnesses. Again, it's an allegation; hasn't been proven in a court of law, but it's a pretty shocking one, especially because we have the same matter going on right now with NSC Lavlin, where there's an issue that there was either that there was an obstruction of justice allegation, which would include naturally the theory of tampering with a matter before a criminal, you know, before the justice courts and before uh, dealing with a criminal proceeding. It's astonishing that these two things sort of have, well, I, I guess you'd say they're sort of along the same line. They're kind of the driver from A to B, and you can sort of fill in the gaps and sort of see uh, maybe not necessarily a direct pattern, but an indirect pattern of how the liberal government operates behind the scenes. And quite honestly, Scott, just in case people think I'm being partisan, I can think of no previous conservative or liberal government before Mr. Trudeau that has ever done that, not only once, but twice. Uh, Norman's attorney, very vocal uh, in the press conference yesterday, saying that the government uh, was withholding or had withheld information that they needed for uh, for Norman's defense. Uh, yeah. it, it took them six months to get that information or, or yeah. something along those lines. And then, and then once that information uh, was discovered, that the, the charges were dropped. How is that going to play into all of this? Well, as I think more and more Canadians are now becoming aware of this case, the Norman case has been discussed. For example, a lot of media organizations have talked about it. It's just been sort of, it's been hidden behind the scenes because NSC Lavlin has just basically taken over, up until very recently, most of the front pages of most newspapers or most news telecasts or most radio broadcasts. For that reason, the general populace was basically concentrating on one issue, with this issue being the Norman case sort of in the background ready to happen or explode at some point, but people weren't paying a lot of attention to it. Now that people are starting to hear about it, and as well with the fact that Vice Admiral Norman is apparently going to be speaking in the next few days about it more willingly, which means that he'll be opening up to newspapers, TV, radio, and others about it, uh, I think that certainly with some of the allegations they said at their press conference, and if he's able to either emphasize those points or expand on them, I mean, this could be deadlier than NSC Lavlin for the Liberals, if you can believe it. Are you surprised that they offered to pay for Norman's defense so quickly? It seemed as if uh, that was mentioned at the press conference and caught both uh, Norman and his attorney off guard. Yes, I I think that actually shows the Liberals are sort of sheepishly looking at this. I, I think that's really why they're doing it. And I think, who knows, maybe they felt in their own right, because they've, we've certainly seen them pay off other people over a period of time from Homer Cotter on. Maybe they keep feeling it. They throw money at a problem, it'll just go away. Some people certainly believe that. Some governments in the past have believed that as well. But generally speaking, I don't think that, they, that the Canadian public is really going to put up with something like that. And the fact that he, they were so willing to do it and, so, and did it so quickly as you pointed out, basically means, I think, that they acknowledge their mistake early on. 
which then leads you to wonder why they spend two years doing this. Hmm. As you pointed out, why they take six months or so to, to basically share evidence that they were legally supposed to give up and sort of tried to fight to hold it back unless they realized, again, you have to be careful about this and you have to look at all the documents, but unless they realized they were in the wrong from the very beginning. And if that's the case, not only will Vice Admiral Norman cause them damage, they've done damage to themselves and damage that I would really argue is irreparable. So what about the timing of this? Uh, as, as you mentioned, uh, they, they could have handled this long ago before it ever became or had the chance of becoming a, an election issue. Were they just trying to put it to an end quickly now? Well, yeah, I guess so, but he can't. I mean, once, once something is out in the open, and you know this, there, there's no way to put the genie back in the bottle. There's no way to hide behind it. There's no way to basically wait, raise your invisible hand and, and, you know, basically thrush it away. That's not how life basically works. Once an issue is out there and it's been discussed and people have talked about it and it's been written about to some degree or discussed to some degree, which it has for the past couple of years, throwing money at it is not going to basically allow it to go away it's, and it won't go away. And it doesn't have to be a partisan issue. I think this should actually be frustrating more so than to conservatives like me or New Democrats or Greens or others, I think it should be frustrating to liberals, Scott, because they're watching a prime minister who has really been shooting himself in the foot the past few years with his own behavior and mediocre leadership skills and poor oratorial skills, an incredible lack of policy knowledge and various other things that at least they could hide to some degree or they've tried to hide for the past few years. And now without someone like Gerald Butts around, who is the former principal secretary and one of Justin Trudeau's closest friends, who clearly had a major role in, I wouldn't say necessarily putting this all aside, but finding a way to kind of allow the liberal government to move on with any of this coming out or being leaked out, something has clearly happened. And what has clearly happened is that the weaknesses of this liberal government are being exposed day after day after day. And really, liberals should be sitting there thinking about it, saying that, you know, they can make the argument that, well, you know, the Tories are awful this, the NDP are awful that, all they're doing is criticizing us. Maybe they should look at their own government and their own party and their own leader and start to recognize what's happening here. We're not even actually adding to the scandal. The liberals are adding to their own scandal. That is what is so shocking about this, Scott. The rest of us have nothing to do with it. We're just riding along with it, because what else are we supposed to do? It's incredible the gifts that they are giving the opposition parties, both on the right and on the left of the political spectrum. And I don't think they realize it. And if they really think that Canadians are just going to ignore all of this, Scott, God help them. Because when you put NSC Lovelin and Mark Norman together, that's a deadly combination. Uh, so what happens to Vice Admiral Mark Norman now? Uh, they say he can go back to the military but not have his old job back. I think that's actually disgraceful. I really do. If there has been a stay in this case, and they are not proceeding with it, and they are paying his legal fees, which is basically an admission that they recognize that he is either not guilty or they cannot prove his guilt, and they, you know, they obviously it brought him to a position that was the third highest at one point in the Canadian forces, why wouldn't they give him his job back? Because he deserves it. I mean, he was put through the ringer for two years 
you know, draining his finances, putting, I'm sure, an enormous amount of strain in the system because he simply criticized something that he thought was being inadequately done or was, or in his mind, was not the best way to go about it, that being with this Canadian ship. I just find it hard to believe that they would do this to the man. They wouldn't actually, at least, if nothing else, give him his old job back because, you know, it's very clear to me that he didn't deserve to lose in the first place. And I think a lot of Canadians would probably say the same thing right now, no matter where they are in the political spectrum, if at all. I think it's just offensive. And, I mean, I don't know what he would do. I would, I mean, if I were Vice Admiral Norman, I wouldn't go back because I'm not being given the chance to redeem myself, to, re, you know, to bring my, you know, to sort of repair my public image and prove that there was a reason why in 2016 I was made into that important, or I was placed into that important position. I don't know. I mean, from his standpoint, it almost seems to be better, I hate to say it, to be a martyr of sorts mm. and talk about the mistakes that were made to him, to the country, and in just in that deal in particular, and expose it, not from a political vendetta, but a personal one. Because it's, I just, you know, if you sit in that position, you think about it, it's just ridiculous that they wouldn't put him back in the position that he deserved to hold if, in fact, based on the fact that they dropped this case, he did nothing wrong. What about, we're hearing uh, Jason Kenney's name being floated around these discussions. Uh, what about his involvement in all of this? I don't know. I, I mean, I'm seeing that, too, and I'm not really sure. This is relatively new to me as well. You know, look, it's certainly, the discussion is that there were a number of former conservative ministers who intervened, and Mr. Kenny is one of them. Is it possible that some of the information may have helped here? The CBC, I think, Scott, was the first one to report it, and I think it's fair to look into it, and I think it's fair to discuss it. And if they were helpful, that's great. I mean, I think they deserve some praise for it because they've helped basically improve and protect an innocent man's reputation. Because clearly, a lot of people felt that Vice Admiral Norman didn't do anything wrong. And sure, I know some people just argue, well, it's just conservatives taking, you know, taking advantage of a situation where they could benefit. Maybe so, in part. But on the other hand, I don't know what Mr. Norman believes in. I don't know what his reputation is. I don't know what his political orientation is. We know that he's close with Andrew Leslie, who's a liberal or was a liberal MP up until very recently. So I don't know. I mean, I think that if Jason Kenney and others were involved, that's fine. It's, for, it's up to them to talk about it and discuss it. But if they were doing to basically help someone, or if they felt that there was an injustice being done, then I think they were right to get involved. As to whether Jason Kenney involved, was involved or not, that's for him to say. How much is this going to cost taxpayers? Uh, what uh, I'm guessing there'll be a lawsuit of some sort from yeah. from Norman. Um, wh- how much do you think this is going to cost taxpayers? I, I couldn't even begin to guess. It'll cost a lot. I mean, if you will, he get ten million at, like Cotter did. Well, yeah, I brought up Cotter earlier. Yeah. It wouldn't shock me. I, in fact, I wouldn't be surprised if he went for more. Why not? But I don't know. I mean, certainly you would think at least in this case that more Canadians would be sympathetic to any sort of an arrangement or deal they come up with with Vice Admiral Norman. I don't know how much it'll cost us. Certainly you would have to guess it will be several million. You could use 10 million as a figure or lower. You could also use 10 million as a figure or higher. 
it's just a question of how much how much damage they actually cause behind the scenes. And as Vice Admiral Norman will speak more often about this in the next few days or weeks or months ahead, I guess we'll find out exactly what was involved in that case and what we did and did not know. And maybe he's going to ask for a lot. I mean, certainly when you consider the fact that he spent three decades in the Navy, worked hard, rose to an extremely important position, and then basically had the rug pulled out under from him from something that doesn't look like he was done out of malice or out of spite, but to actually help or improve the actual Canadian military and the Navy itself, I don't know. You would think that the price tag is going to be enormous. But on this one, I find that you'll, or I figure, that less Canadians will argue about it because they'll be sympathetic with what they saw and realize that this Liberal government is just, you know, as I said earlier, just shooting itself in the foot over and over again. Well, this is the biggest gunshot of all, and it's going to cost us plenty but in this one case, I think it's justified. Michael Tobe has been with us, Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. Michael, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Have a good day. You too. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.